Serious TV Drama Podcast. I'm Scott, and I've decided to continue the somewhat unusual STVD tradition this summer of once again focusing away from the relatively small screen in our homes and zeroing in on a big blockbuster budget-sized movie. But instead of Indiana Jones and The Flash, those two pods that I recently co-hosted with fellow geeky sort Pat, this is going to be a solo mission I'll be flying. Should I choose to accept it? Yes, You know what that means. It means I'll be talking about Mission Impossible. And the plan is to talk about all seven Mission Impossible films, at least to some extent or another. The impossible part of this mission? That'll be getting it all done in less time than it typically takes the government to disavow Ethan Hunt and his IMF team, which happens, what, every movie? Every other movie? I don't know. But first, let's start by looking back for a moment at the original TV series. Now, although the IMF team was initially led by a man named Briggs, uh, by the second season, Jim Phelps, played by Peter Graves, who many will recall was the pilot who really liked Gladiator movies back in the airplane, he became the team leader. And Phelps was the one holdover character, or at least character in name only, perhaps, that the movie franchise also utilized uh, when, when it kicked off back in 1996. Now, most, if not all, Mission Impossible episodes would play as, well, elaborate con jobs to foil terrorist plots and evil global mastermind types. In fact, one of the earliest inspirations for the series was the nonfiction novel uh, that was written back in the 40s called The Big Con. Um, That's notable for me because that book is also recognized as one of the biggest inspirations for one of my personal favorite movies, The Sting. Now, the series was both a critical success. I mean, it won the Emmy for Best Drama Series in its first two seasons. Although, somehow, the now classic music by uh, Lalo Schifrin, that never won an Emmy. Go figure. Now, ratings-wise, the series, it was mostly mid-level. I mean, the highest seasonal average it ever achieved was 12th, um, which meant nearly 24 million viewers. And it got that in its third season. But more often than not... It tended to rank in the 30s through the 50s, with average viewer total somewhere in the 15 to 19 million range. By the way, ratings like that would be tremendous today. You know, your shows like, you know, Game of Thrones, the the original Walking Dead, whatever, never got ratings like that. Not that high. Another interesting thing about that TV series, and I'm, to be specific, I'm talking about the one that ran from 1966 to 1973, not that revival, brief revival that happened in the late 80s was the creator, Bruce Geller, he stuck to his guns by showing little to no indication of any personal lives or insights or, frankly, any true character development for anyone on the series. He felt it would take away from the plots, the scams, the ruses, the con jobs, and so on for every episode. So the characters all pretty much remained ciphers, blank slates, so to speak. It kind of sounds like the tack taken a couple of decades later when Dick Wolf kicked off the Law & Order series and eventual franchise. That was also his way of thinking, to generally avoid anything involving the characters' personal lives. So every episode was devoted completely to the case of nothing else. 
Oh, we're, we're in the Connect Law and Order and Mission Impossible again. Uh, you may recall just a minute or two ago, I mentioned the first season of Mission Impossible. They were led by a guy named Briggs, not uh, Phelps. The guy named Briggs, he was played by Stephen Hill, who was one of the original cast members of Law and Order. Just occurred to me to mention that. Anyhow, back to Mission Impossible. And let's get to those movies that featured Jim Phelps in the very first one, although it was a decidedly non-heroic version of that character. And that was probably one of the main reasons the original cast pretty much detested the film. I mean, original cast member Greg Morris, he literally walked off a screening of the movie in disgust. And Peter Graves, you know what? He was not a fan of turning his character into a traitor. And that was the reason he actually passed on the role in the film. That's right. He actually was offered the role before they gave it to John Boyd. Now, it is funny. I think it's funny to note that the IMF team is never disavowed or disbanded or anything like that on the original TV series. Despite the fact those ominous words are delivered on every recorded message to kick off every mission. But it does seem to happen to some extent or another in practically every Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> you know? Except maybe the second one, if I have that right. It's basically just a way of adding another really major obstacle and source of conflict, both externally and internally, for the team at times. Now, the Mission Impossible TV series had a very similar formula from episode to episode. And one could say that about the movie series as well. Only with that aforementioned additional element I was just talking about of tension that gets added to the mix. Although, personally, I'm not sure how many times one has to save the world before getting a little bit more faith or slack from your employers or your country. And, you know, if it's not the entire team that's being disavowed, distrusted, vilified, and thrown under the bus by the old US of A, well, you know, it's always Ethan Hunt, who's the main character and hero of these films, just as much as James Bond or Jason Bourne. Only Hunt does have a very small IMF team working with him on every mission. Um, unlike the mostly solo efforts of those other cinematic spies. Although, I guess one thing he has in common with Bourne is that they both tend to be a fugitive on the run from the government than Hunt. Now, the movies are somewhat closer in tone, however, to the Bond films. Maybe there's slightly less reliance on the the Bond girl concept, and there's not really that much in the way of the flashy, memorable main henchman of the big bad that Bond movies tend to always have. The Mission Impossible films also might play a teensy bit more comedic due to the IMF team members played by actors like Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames, as well as Cruz actually having a decent sense of humor himself. All that, plus some outrageous stunt sequences, make for one of the more sturdy and understandable movie franchises of the past 25-plus years. Look, more so than Top Gun or anything else he's done to this point, this is basically Tom Cruise's superhero franchise, if you will. So, mild confession time. While I have seen every single Mission Impossible film in the theaters, I have, in fact, only seen every film once and only once. It's not that I never rewatch recent movies. Hell, I've watched Memento and the Nolan Batman movies a ton of times each. But generally speaking, it's just not something that I do. But much like I did with the Burton Batman movies before going to see Keaton reprise his role in The Flash, and then the four Indiana Jones films before going to see Dial of Destiny, I thought I'd take the plunge. No, not off a 130-story building. You should be so lucky. But the plunge in, in terms of watching all six Mission Impossible films back to back to back to back to back to back before venturing out to see 
the new Dead Reckoning Part 1. I do know of a few folks who are fans of these films, and a couple of those folks, why am I saying folks so many times? A couple of those dudes, because they're both men, uh, posted their own personal ranking of the films after seeing the latest one. So I thought, what could be more fair than me doing this, seeing all six, again, one right after the other, and then the new one? That would make it as objective a way of viewing these films as possible. And then I could also see if my order was in sync with them, and others I've seen published on websites and so on, or maybe we would differ. Who knows? That's really just for my own personal uh, curiosity. So here I go. I'm going to go through them one by one, but don't worry, it is not my intention to do much recapping or, in fact, spend an inordinate amount of time on any one film beyond my own observations about the movie, which I'm hoping will yield at least one or two original thoughts here and make listening this listening experience, I should say, a worthwhile for you, one for you, the listener. So let's get to the first one. By the way, it kills me that I can't use little clips of music here because I would really like to be using the Mission Impossible music throughout this podcast, but I just feel there'll be licensing issues. Next thing you know, it'll get banned in like 17 countries or something. So you can, you'll have to imagine a dun, 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 dun throughout the whole damn podcast. Anyway, the first one is obviously titled Mission Impossible. That was the one that Brian De Palma directed. Funny, this was actually his second foray into directing a feature film based on a long-running TV series from decades earlier. As you may recall, he also directed The Untouchables back in 1987. And while there are maybe some De Palma touches here and there, you know, touching on his home directorial talents when it came to the thriller genre, going back to earlier standouts like Blowout and Body Double, he really mostly does the job in a far less flashy fashion. Flashy fashion. Try to say that a bunch of times. He lets the stars, the stunts, and the visual effects crew really do the heavier lifting in this film. Now, the main shock of the film is the execution of nearly the entire IMF team. Stars like Emilio Estevez and Kristen Scott Thomas were all dead midway through the first act. And then the template that will be reused in most of the subsequent films is therefore set up. Ethan Hunt has been framed, or is on the run, or has been disavowed, or he's just public enemy number one. And with the help of a quote-unquote new team, he has to follow the plot which will eventually clear his name, and like any true hero, he rarely seems to care that he's been abandoned by his country. Now, this movie, it's actually a very solid film. I recall seeing it for the first time, and while I suspected something was up with John Voight's Jim Phelps very early on, I also still had the mindset, but it's Jim Phelps, they just can't. And it was his apparent death that made me think, oh no, I ain't buying this. And wow. Yep, they made Phelps the traitor. It's, I'd say it's mostly a fun ride, and I got a feeling I'm going to say the phrase fun ride a few times in this podcast, so apologies in advance. Although I do think, in terms of this movie, Ethan really should have been suspicious of Claire far sooner, as she hardly seems to mourn the passing of her husband, and seems to be into Ethan with those lingering looks and hands across the face pretty much from the get-go. I really did enjoy Ethan's mind's eye imaging of how the original con of killing off the IMF team went down. I was just watching the, the final 15 minutes of the Justified finale from 2013, the series with Timothy Oliphant. And they do something like that there as well, where Raylan Givens talks about all the possible people that might have helped someone get away. And we see each of them, even as he dismisses each one for a variety of reasons. And now I get to say something briefly controversial before moving on. 
as far as that new IMF team and and or villains, by the way, I also prefer Jean Renault as a bad guy and watching him get killed off. Because I happen to think Leon, the professional, or as I knew it was called when I was growing up, the professional, I kind of think that's a highly overrated film. And that's actually coincidentally how I feel about most of Luc Besson's work. The fifth element, please. Okay. <laughs> that's nothing to do with Mission Impossible. I'm just going to diss another movie altogether. Next, we have Mission Impossible 2. Now, before I go any further, I think the screenwriters for both this film and the previous one need to be pointed out. For the first one, you had David Kep and Steven Zalian working out, working out the story, meaning they likely hatched the overall idea, and by and large, what the beats were going to be of the story, the twists, and maybe some characterizations, and so on. The actual screenplay that was co-written with David Kep and Robert Town. Now, Kep, he's scripted some major blockbuster films in his time. Jurassic Park, the first Spider-Man film, uh, the original Mummy film, and he's also the writer of some not quite as beloved summer movies, be it War of the Worlds or the last couple Indiana Jones movies. But by and large, he knows what he's doing. But like most writers and directors, for that matter, one could say he's hit and miss. Now, Stephen Zellian, he brings a bit more prestige to the table because he was the writer of Schindler's List, Moneyball. He even goes all the way back to The Falcon and the Snowman. And Robert Town, dude... Robert Town is a legend. He wrote Chinatown. Are there a bunch of... <laughs> I'll be nice and say somewhat iffy films on his writing uh, resume there. Oh, yeah. But again, he wrote Chinatown, which, as I've said a million times before, it's one of the three greatest screenplays of all time. Which now gets us into Mission Impossible 2. The story for this one... They went and got the two leading dudes at the time who were f working on the Star Trek franchise, uh, Brandon Braga and the even more respected and beloved Ronald D. Moore. Yeah, Moore. He's the guy who went on to create the amazing Battlestar Galactica reboot and revival. They got story credits for this. But Robert Town, he had the solo screenplay credit this time around. Even though he did indicate in interviews that a lot of the action sequences were planned out long before there was even a working script done. Now, here's the really odd thing about this movie, After now that I've told you all that. You've got Robert Town writing the screenplay. Ooh. And then as I'm watching it, I'm realizing he's taking elements from a few different Alfred Hitchcock films. And he's plugging them into the main mechanics of his screenplay. I mean, check it out. Hunt takes up with, uh, what's her name? Nia Hall. A woman he knows is going to be instrumental in his upcoming mission. Then they find out she has to cozy up to the main bad guy, because they have some sort of a past together. And it means that they need her to share his bed so she can share his secrets with them. She's not too happy about it, neither is Hunt. But you know what? It's the mission. You know what else that is? It's the plot of Notorious. You know, Cary Grant, Ingrid Bergman, Claude Rains. The only difference beyond Notorious having a far more impressive trio right there is that the villain in that film, Alex Sebastian, um, he just had a thing for the female character, Alicia, like an unfulfilled schoolboy crush. Now, the bad guy in this one, Ambrose and, and Nia, um, they had actually been a couple in the past. It was more about getting back together with his ex. So while all that's happening, then you have Ambrose's right-hand man. 
He's clearly suspicious all the time. He's weirdly always around and clingy to Ambrose. In fact, if you didn't know any better, you might think he had a thing for his boss himself, the way he seems to regard um, the boss's girlfriend. Very weird. A little creepy. And you know what else? Does it sound a little familiar? It should. Because we can go back to another Hitchcock film that can really lay claim, also as a template for pretty much every other action film over the last 60-plus years, even as, as it owns its own lineage to earlier Hitchcock films about a wrongly accused man on the run. Yes, I'm talking about another and a different Cary Grant Hitchcock collaboration this time. I'm talking about North by Northwest. The, dude, the dude's doing the Martin Landau thing. That's uh, Richard Roxburgh. His hue is clearly modeled after Martin Landau's Leonard. Now, one can also point to, again, the woman has to do double duty in working with the hero while sleeping with the villain. Only that time it was even Marie Saint and James Mason. Um, that, 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 that's a trope we see over and over. I know I said trope. I apologize. And let me say, even as I point all that out, there's nothing wrong with any of that. There is nothing wrong with that. In fact, having Town write your screenplay while being clearly influenced immensely by Hitchcock films, that only means this should be one of the best sequels of all time. At least easily one of the best Mission Impossible movies, right? But unfortunately, it isn't. While it's nice that he didn't fall into the Ethan Hunt has been disavowed, blah, 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 that we're going to see in so many subsequent films, and there are certainly some fun scenes and stunts, as there pretty much are with all of them, I think the director, John Woo, he just couldn't get away from his own penchant of excess, from the preponderance of slow motion, oh my god, so many slow motion scenes, to pigeons, pigeons, pigeons everywhere, to a really just overly familiar way of staging fight scenes. It just ends up being the least satisfying film of the entire series. And yeah, you know what? It made a ton of money. It was the highest grossing film of that year. It probably helped guarantee that the franchise would keep going. But like I just said, it is not going to be a spoiler in this podcast to say, when I rank all seven films at the end, this film is already targeted ticketed even, to be at the bottom of the list. Which brings us to the third installment, which would be Mission Impossible 3. Now, the writing chores this time, Kurtzman, Orsi, and Abrams. Now, Kurtzman and Orsi, you know what, they're frequent collaborators with J.J. Abrams on many of his projects over the years, but surprisingly not lost. But things like Alias to the Star Trek movies, They've always worked with J.J. Um, Kurtzman has also been a big part of the creative producing force behind all the recent Star Trek series you guys have been watching, everything from Discovery through Picard, I think even Strange New Worlds. And then you got J.J. Abrams, who also directed the film. And this movie has J.J. Abrams written all over it. From the cold opening tease that we'll get to more than... We won't get to until more than... What, like halfway through the movie? I think even more than that, maybe two-thirds of the way through the movie. By the way, that's a device I've personally always been a big fan of, be it TV or film. Um, I just love doing that. I've done it myself when I've tried to write things. And then you have the mystery of MacGuffin throughout the entire film that's never really explained. In this film's case, it's the rabbit's foot. <laughs> you know, that, that plus, you know, Abrams' work on Alias can really be felt here a number of times. Probably more so than any other film in the franchise, this film also has the fun trivia legacy of what could have been. Now, following De Palma and then John Woo, 
The studio had hired another major directorial name to take the reins of a Mission Impossible film. That person was David Fincher. But he actually dropped out. Then they went and hired the... Let's just say the somewhat less ballyhooed director, Joe Carnahan. Hack. And he worked on the movie for over a year. And that cast was set to have Kenneth Branagh, um, Carrie Ann Moss, Scarlett Johansson. But then that fell apart. The actors eventually all left the project, and the script was mostly scrapped. But Cruz, you know, tried to get things done on his own. He had actually binged a couple of seasons of the aforementioned Alias. He loved it. And he reached out to J.J. Abrams himself to direct it. Now, this all led to even more delays due to Abrams' involvement in both Alias and Lost at that time. But eventually things did come together. Now, outside of one more little thing, he actually had hired Ricky Gervais to play Benji, which clearly didn't happen because uh, all these delays led Gervais to leave because he was going to be in the Christopher Guest film um, For Your Consideration. And as we all know, he was replaced by Simon Pegg. But after that, the script and the film eventually did get back on track. And here, the triumph of the film is casting Philip Seymour Hoffman as the... How should I describe him? Um, I like Solus. The Solus arms dealer, Owen Davian. First of all, Hoffman might lead the list, even over the likes of Heath Ledger and River Phoenix, of those immensely talented actors who left us way, way too soon. And man, every line he delivers in this film, every smoothly uttered threat to Hunt and his loved ones, it just carries more menace and weight than, frankly, any other villain before or or even since in the Mission Impossible movies. And if the second film borrowed liberally from Hitchcock, well, you know what? This one goes a little closer to the most obvious of inspirations, James Bond, namely On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yes, that's the film where James Bond also gets married. And that happens in this film. Michelle Monaghan, she's an immensely appealing actress. I finally recall her um, from that first season of True Detective. But what makes this one work is oddly what didn't work in the previous installment. This was less about averting a global crisis, and it became more personal, more visceral. Perhaps it being a genuine loved one who we know is under threat from the very start, thanks to that cold open, maybe that gave this really special sense of foreboding for the entire picture. The relationship, of course, between Hunt and Julia is far more palpable and real, as is the danger presented by Hoffman's Davian, as opposed to some, what was it, a self-injected virus that had Thandie Newton stumbling across cliff sides back in the previous movie? Or you know what? Maybe this is just a far better film. And by the way, the fact that it's the lowest grossing film in the franchise is hardly indicative of anything. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Um, I believe The Empire Strikes Back is the lowest grossing of the nine main Star Wars movies. There you go. Most people pick Empire as either the best or the second best of the entire series. I think also that applies to um, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I think that tends to be the best liked of all the Harry Potter films, as I, as I believe it should be, or, or, or in the top one or two. And I think that was also the lowest grossing of those films. Anyway, 
back to this movie. We also get a supporting cast featuring post-Felicity but pre-Americans Carrie Russell. We get Billy Crudup. And I, although I can't remember if there's ever an explanation why we never see him again, we do get Lawrence Fishburne. And it's a damn good flick that I'd say is definitely better. Tell you what, it's better than some of Abrams' other directing efforts in major movie franchises. <laughs> I'll leave it to you to guess which <clears throat> IPs, franchises, what's, and so on that I'm referring to. Okay, I'm going to take a sip of something, because my throat's getting a little dry, and then we'll get to the fourth film. We use the ice clinking as, like, the, the music in between. Clink, 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 clink. Anyway, that fourth film will be Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, the one where we take it up a notch or three. It's also the one where they decided to stop with the numbers and let's go with the subheading, subtitle, whatever you want to call that additional phrase at the end of a movie title. This one was written by Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec, whose work had mainly been in TV. Nemec had an Abrams connection from being a writer on Alias. Obviously, not obviously, it's not obvious at all. I should say actually, actually. It's probably more notable that this was directed by Brad Bird. It's actually the first non-animated film under his direction. Now, his credits before that were really impressive, if you know your animation. The vastly underrated Iron Giant. Um, probably, if not the best Pixar film in the conversation, as one of the top two or three, The Incredibles and Ratatouille. And maybe it's that sense of limitless potential that animation provides, plus finding room to have equal shares of both pathos and humor, that helps make Bird make what might have been the most impressive turn at directing in the series at, up to this point. Plus, he got a new cast joining the team with Simon Pegg, with Jeremy Renner and Paula Patton, and they also brought in Michael Nyquist, who was just getting recognized by American audiences as the male lead from the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. He makes a satisfactory, if not quite as memorable, as the last guy, uh, villain. Now, the Russian jailbreak scene, and particularly Hunt's silent arguing with Benji, is so delightfully memorable. It's one of my favorite openings of any of these films, quite frankly. Um, you also have the launching of a nuke, which ends up grazing the Transamerica Tower in San Francisco. Um, you know, that was cute. I mean, I will live a happy life if I never have to see the old, oh, it's the two keys nervously launching a bomb. Oh, no, shtick. I've seen that in so many movies that I, I never want to see it again. But with this film, it's those scenes in Dubai, especially the ones at the, the Burj Khalifa, which is the world's tallest building. That's what really put this movie on the map in bright and bold ink. And I remember when I was seeing this in the theater, it was one of one out of only two films I've ever had a queasy, almost vertigo-like feeling when watching it. The other one was oddly um, Peter Jackson's King Kong, which I saw on a massive screen when I was younger, and it kind of made me dizzy uh, when he's up on the build Empire State Building. But sticking with this movie, the stunts on the side of the building... The game of switcheroo in the two rooms, and then the entire sandstorm sequence. I mean, we're in my conversation with you right now, I'm only midway through all seven films, and I'm telling you right now, that's probably both literally and figuratively the high point of all the stunts and sequences in any of the films. I love that I hear police sirens when I'm talking about something like this. Um, 
Plus, you've got Renner's Brandt character, who provides an interesting counter to Hunt. Um, he's more of the pragmatic realist, more apt to question and worry. As well as you have Patton, who's also a nice addition. I think maybe she deserved to appear in a subsequent film, quite frankly. Also, other than reassuring the audience that they did not, in fact, kill off Ethan's wife after all, the film also ends with the first mention of the Syndicate. And that's going to be the organization that will take center stage for the later Mission Impossible films. Kind of like uh, James Bond's Spectre. And while I enjoyed the rewatch of Ghost Protocol, I also recall that this was the one I felt really re-energized the franchise and made me look forward eagerly to the next Mission Impossible film. And having said that, that's probably as good a segue as any to get to the fifth film, which is Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. That's the movie that ushers in the Macquarie age, as Christopher Macquarie takes over the directing duties from this point on and is either the sole writer or the co-writer of the screenplays from this point on as well. Now, Macquarie is previously best known as the writer of The Usual Suspects, as well as a number of other Tom Cruise projects over the years. You know, the best scripted one probably being Edge of Tomorrow. He even did some uncredited touch-up work on the script for uh, Ghost Protocol. Now, Rogue Nation brings back Renner as Brandt, as well as now franchise, let's call them stalwarts, because I like words that no one ever says out loud. Stalwarts, uh, Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg as Benji and Luther. It also adds Rebecca Ferguson as Ilsa Faust. And side note, I really like Ferguson. She always has a certain way about her, as if she's constantly thinking and calculating at any given moment. I mean, hey, I may not have really liked the film Doctor Sleep, but I really liked her in it. And if I ever do get around to watching that Silo series on Apple TV, not to mention the Dune movies, I gather she would probably be one of the main reasons I'll even bother to do that at all. Then you add Alec Baldwin to the mix. And at least on the big screen, Baldwin always adds a little something special to almost any film he appears in. And being the government foil here, even more so than, say, Fishburne in the third film, or Angela Bassett's going to be in the next one, he adds a serious form of fun to the proceedings, whether it's his line deliveries or his constant state of suppressed agitation. Now, this rogue nation, although it does beat a familiar drum, you know, bye bye Ethan Hunt and the IMF task force, you're on your own now, guys, it does a really great job in setting up and presenting a global network of villainy. You know, it's the one you have to have. Like I said earlier, Bond as Spectre. Well, who else you got? Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. have Hydra. Hell, Maxwell Smart has Chaos. And, and Inspector Gadget has Mad. The Syndicate, while it's not the most interesting named organization, is definitely one of the most threatening, especially with Solomon Lane as the main architect of it all. He's played with an unsettling coldness by Sean Harris. And while some parts are outlandish and over the top, even for a Mission Impossible movie, it all still kind of works somehow, and it certainly and easily has one of the best overall single plots of any of the first five films. Plus, hey, come on, your female lead is named Ilsa, and you end up with an extended sequence in Casablanca. I mean, you gotta love that if you're a movie guy or a gal, right? And if I'm not mistaken, this was the first Mission Impossible film not to kill off the villain at the end. Let me think, wait, Phelps, dead. Ambrose, dead. Davian, uh, dead. Hendrix, oh, dead. Yep, 
before all this, all previous four villains dead, 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 dead. So you got to know that's going to have repercussions as we move to that sixth film, which was, you know, repercussions is another word for fallout, mission impossible fallout. Those repercussions I was just talking about result in Solomon Lane returning in this film. And now the subversive flip is Hunt and his team have to initially break him out of custody. Now, before the true plot and plan of the film comes to light, with Lane once again being several steps ahead of everyone, and the mastermind of yet another plan, based on that manifesto mantra of, there cannot be peace without first a great suffering, the greater the suffering, the greater the peace. Well, you got Peg and Rames are back as is Baldwin, and even Rebecca Ferguson. And, hey, eventually Michelle Monaghan reappears as well. As I mentioned her before, we add Angela Bassett as the CIA director. She gets tossed into the mix. And probably the biggest addition, who eventually becomes Hunt's true arch-nemesis of the film, is Henry, um, Henry, 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 Henry Cavill as August Walker. He's a double agent who at first... It seems to be a contentious CIA agent who's piggybacking on the mission, since the IMF team is again, once again, under the microscope due to Hunt choosing to save one of his own team members instead of, you know, protecting a suitcase of plutonium. And later, he's adamant that Hunt is, in fact, the mysterious John Lark, the man who's at the center of any number of deadly missions and procurements for the other side. Let me sip my drink again. But midway through the film, or thereabouts, it's revealed that Walker is, in fact, working for the syndicate. Hey, you know what? He's John Lark. So this is the role that Cavill grew that mustache for, and they wouldn't let him shave it when he had to go back and do some reshoots for Joss Whedon and Warner Brothers when they were doing um, Justice League, and hence how he ended up with that infamously digitally erased upper lip. I suppose if it had been work... If he had been working for the same studio for both films, maybe they would have let him shave it and then just let hair and makeup fix him up with a new one that probably no one would have been the wiser. But nope. Paramount said, screw you, Warner. We're not helping you guys. <laughs> so that's what happened. Now, one of the really terrific things about this movie is the Cavill Cruz conflict. It might also be the one and only main villain and combatant that one would really find credible for the Tom Cruise character. I mean, look, we know Tom Cruise is not a big guy. We all know that. But taking on someone like John Voight, come on. Doug Ray Scott, what, he's a few inches taller, please. Philip Seymour Hoffman, or what's his name, uh, the Swedish actor, Nyquist? Hardly. I mean, not counting Voight, I mean, he was like 20 years older at the time. I think the actor who plays Solomon Lane is technically the tallest of the main bad guys in all these films at six feet, but none of them are really what you'd call a physically imposing person. Now, Henry Cavill, he's a complete hunk or hulk. He's a hunk and a hulk compared to all of them. I mean, there's a reason this dude was playing Superman, you know, and it wasn't his mastery of the thespian arts. Now, the one thing this Fallout may suffer from, it's... um. It's a bit overstuffed. It's almost too much. First of all, almost every Mission Impossible film is then longer than the previous one, except in one instance. The first one is a shockingly lean hour and 50 minutes. The next one, two hour and three minutes. 
and two hours and six minutes. Then the fourth one was two hours and 12 minutes. <laughs> Somehow the fifth one actually dropped in length by one minute, but then the sixth one gorged itself on running time. It blimps out to two hours and 27 minutes. And I, I'm, when I get, you know, the next one that we'll be talking about at the end of this podcast, that one turns out to be 20 minutes longer than that. And that's a part one. Jesus. So back to Fallout. Could this movie be trimmed by, say, 10 or 15 minutes? Oh, absolutely. But you know what? It is still wildly entertaining. I mean, even the scenes that could have been potentially turgid exposition are rarely pockmarked by any blips of boredom whatsoever. I mean, look, is it a little tiresome that once again someone, typically a famous someone, who's in a high governmental position, thinks Hunt is a reckless rogue agent who can't be trusted to do what needs to be done? Again, Hunt saves the world, and again, they, the CIA, the IMF, or whoever, director, you know, your Fishburns, your Baldwins, and now your Bassets, they realize, oh, he is the man for the job after all. He is Jack Bauer. I mean, Ethan Hunt, after all. Actually, it can't be Jack Bauer. Jack Bauer never has a time to do as much traveling as Ethan apparently does. But look, this movie, it may be a bit long, but boy, is it fun. Overstepped is not the worst word. It's a buffet for a Mission Impossible fan, because it features a little bit of everything. Maybe a lot of bit of everything in this one. I mean, Mission Impossible 3 was like that first meal you have after a long night of drinking, carousing, and those headaches are ensuing. I mean, you felt a little off and queasy after Mission Impossible 2, but Mission, Mission Impossible 3 made it all better in the moment. Ghost Protocol, eh, a fine meal, a healthy salad, but this the meal may be a little bit decadent. Rogue Nation, the same, but maybe you overdid it on dessert a little bit. No, you were still high off the meal. Fallout, Fallout feels like Thanksgiving. <laughs> Which brings us finally to the latest film, and maybe the reason most people tuned into this podcast if they bothered. That would be Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Now you go in knowing with a somewhat unwieldy title stuffed with colons and commas that this is going to be, that this being referred to as a Part 1 it means you know it's not going to end with any true resolution. And honestly, that's probably one of the main factors working against this film and stacking it up against the previous six movies. So let's get into this one. First thing, look, maybe it's a combination of this being the third film in a row under the guidance of the same person, Christopher McQuarrie. Or maybe the players have been brought back once again, just are able to slip into their roles and even amidst the crazy stunts and mind-numbing exposition, there's a there's a comfortable chemistry, shall we say, that is immediately apparent between Cruz and Peg and Rames. Not to mention, hey, there is Rebecca Ferguson again. Ooh, Vanessa Kirby's been is back. They even brought back Henry uh, Cherney as Kittredge, who we haven't seen that dude since the first Mission Impossible movie. I would say in many ways, outside of a couple series standouts, like, you know, like Philip Seymour Hoffman or Alec Baldwin, maybe even Jeremy Renner, maybe, one could make a case that this might be the most pleasing overall cast of any of the Mission Impossible films. Because in addition to all the people I've mentioned they brought back, you add in Shea Wiggum who has been discussed on the STVD podcast a number of times before he makes everything better. And more significantly for this film is Haley Atwell. Haley Atwell, um, she's Grace, 
She is such a big part of this, and I gotta tell you, man, oh man, I have had a crush on Haley Atwell since that very first Captain America movie. Oh, you know, it just occurred to me that she and Shay Wiggum actually co-starred together on Agent Carter, so they've shared the screen together before. That's interesting. And, you know, speaking of Marvel-related things, um, also in this film, um, well, uh, she's less a femme fatale than maybe a truly fatal female, I don't know. It's the actress Pom Clementief, I think is her name. Um, she was the one who was so sweet as Mantis in the Guardians of the Galaxy films, but she's a nasty little piece of assassinating work in this movie. I'm trying to think of anyone I'm forgetting. Um, well, you do have the impossibly smooth face of Carriola as he, he shows up in this one as well. I can't forget about him. You know, he always gets credit for, you know, Princess Bride. So, once again, we have the plot machinery grind into its commonly held position. Ethan Hunt is on the run, not just from the villains, but from the government as well. He's the King Rogue of Going Rogue, and the U.S. will spend millions, maybe billions of dollars on hardware and manpower to bring him down, while ignoring whatever the actual and larger or genuine threat really is. Now, the insidious plot, and it's a somewhat oddly timely coincidence considering the current WGA and SA and SAG strike it's all revolves around an AI that has seemingly gone sentient worming its way into any and all currently used digital networks that affects and impacts essentially everything so one thing we have to keep being reminded of when either the government or Benji and Luther are doing something that, you know, requires the internet or digital connections and so on, is that they're constantly having to tap into some long out of use or defunct satellite from, I don't know, the weather service or the Soviets or whatever. Now, throughout the movie, I, I did find myself pondering the overall plot. Now, I don't mean the plot holes that are slathered over by smile-inducing but truly impossible coincidences. I mean, there are chasm-sized gaps in logic here at times. But I gotta say, having just watched all the previous films, you know, you can kind of say that about all the previous movies as well, some to greater extent than others. So, I'm not really pondering that aspect of it. I'm thinking about the whole AI of it all. Because I thought it was interesting how this has become a real-life issue in so many ways, from the, that aforementioned strike to how, if not AI, then automation, removing the human from the process, which is what AI is really for, um, has impacted so many people. I mean, hell, me, personally, my job was recently eliminated due to any of the things I used to check for errors and violations by my, you know, fellow human beings in my department, that had all shifted being automated. So, you know, but by me. But in terms of fiction, this idea has been knocking about for several decades now. I mean, you can go all the way back to Fritz Lang's Metropolis, or maybe just stay within, you know, science fiction writings of the likes of Asimov and Bradbury in the 1950s, or maybe the plot of several several episodes of The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, or you can zero in on the HAL 9000 going bonkers in 2001. I mean, think about it. Just years later, was it any coincidence that droids were held in such blatant disregard in so many scenes in Star Wars? And then by the time we get to Terminator, oh boy. I mean, heck, just a couple months ago, I finished watching a new series on Peacock 
called Mrs. Davis. And what's that plot about? The entire plot revolved around an AI that had essentially taken over the world. So while it was a little unexpected to see that be a thing in a Mission Impossible film, it really shouldn't have been a surprise at this point. Because, you know, much like the plot of any Bond movie, it's not exactly very grounded. But it is weird that Ice can say that, yet there is a parallel to reality. And if the previous Mission Impossible film, Fallout, if that felt like a huge buffet, well, I don't know, at times this one feels like it's a buffet cooked by chefs on cocaine. I mean, the sequences are elaborate and long, but still ultimately satisfying, at least as far as the sequences are concerned. I mean, I kind of like the nerviness of having this long build-up to what I feel was a highly publicized big stunt of the movie. The one where Cruz eventually zooms off a cliff on a motorcycle, you know, you know, thousands of feet in, into the air or whatever before he uh, hits his parachute or whatever. Um, but we spend so much time on the train with Grace disguised as the White Widow trying to pull off her side of the plan. Um, and so Cruz is not on screen very much during this rather extended sequence. Well, I want to be clear once again. I don't mind that at all. I think it was kind of fun that, you know, they could have the screen time being taken up by someone other than Cruz. But I was aware of it. I did think it was somewhat unusual. Then you add another element into the mix. Something, or someone, from Ethan's past, before he even became a member of the IM Force, which apparently now is depicted as a choice one makes when faced with a decidedly less appetizing option. Although, I honestly, I didn't get that impression that was the case with Jeremy Renner's Brandt or even Simon Pegg's Benji, for that matter. But whatever, I digress. Here we bring in some backstory for Ethan, where a woman he presumably loved was murdered by a say, is it a say or a Sai? I think it's a Sai. A Sai Morales, who was probably mad no one remembered him from La Bamba. No, no, I can't. I'm kidding him. Whatever. But he's less a villain than really feels like more of a plot device and straight-up weapon that the AI, which is referred to as the Entity, is using to hamper Ethan in his personal sworn mission to kill the AI. The AI. Hey, just like that nun on Mrs. Davis. Rather than try to harness its potential world-dominating power the way several other interested parties, you know, whether it be governments or bad people, are itching to do with that AI, the Entity. We also double down on similarly staged sequences from the past, only now they're done to an even further extreme. I mean, you've got your typical massive setup of a car and motorcycle chase, which practically every Mission Impossible movie has. Um, but here, it gets turned on its head because they're forced uh, not just to be in handcuffs, but also driving a baby Fiat, which actually induces more thrilling laughs than most chases ever do. Or the battle inside, or more importantly, outside or astride, a speeding train, which harkens back to the very first film. Except they take this one way, way, way beyond anything done back in the 90s. Even though there's a moment that's vaguely reminiscent of The Fugitive, but, you know, maybe on steroids. There are, at times, so many moving pieces. Either I'm talking about the machinery of the plot, or the sheer number of players on the board, with Ethan and Grace constantly in the crossfire of multiple adversaries. I mean, yeah, again, here's that phrase again. It's a fun ride. It doesn't quite get you to the destination you might have preferred, 
But on the other hand, a more ominous cliffhanger would have been annoying as fuck. But not having a sense of completion does end up leaving me... Look, I don't want to say unsatisfied as much as it just eh, left me feeling a little bit on the empty side. Like, I don't know why I wasn't more upset by the death of Ilsa Faust the way I was even worried about Ethan's wife back in Mission Impossible 3. But maybe it's because I felt it was inevitable way, way, way before the Gabriel character foresaw and declared that either she or Grace were going to die. So, look, the movie, I definitely liked it. But unlike some takes, I've seen blurbs or headlines, headlines about, you know, referring to this film, I can't say this is the best of the series. And with that said, I am now approaching the end of the podcast. It probably makes sense for me to now rank the seven films. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Number seven, as I said earlier, well, that's easy. That's got to be Mission Impossible 2. Between Wu's excesses that are way too distracting to the least memorable villain of the entire series, it is the biggest clunker of them all. Now, number six. This one, oh boy, this one may be a little bit of a surprise, but I'm going to slot the latest one here. That's right, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1, all the way down here at number six. Now, honestly, I'm torn between this and the very next one, which was going to be six, which was going to be five. But I guess the whole this one took the longest but left me the least fulfilled is playing a huge part here. Now, I will concede that when the second part of Dead, Re- Dead Reckoning comes out, I guess it's Dead Reckoning Part 2, whatever that's going to be, that one could end up being at the top of this list, and maybe it'll, it'll carry this along with it there. But right now, for this film, it doesn't change how I felt overall, especially when I'm comparing it to the other films in this series. I made a mention of what the next movie was going to be, and that might be a bigger shock for many. Bigger shock is going to be my pick for number five, because I'm going to go, I'm going to go with the very first one here. That's right. Mission Impossible is my number five. Maybe I just don't like the far less weathered looking Ethan. He's too young. Maybe that Jim Phelps is the bad guy thing never sat well with me. Or maybe the fact the leading lady was kind of lackluster. Maybe it was all that. I don't know. But here it sits, down, at number five. Number four on the list. That's actually going to be Mission Impossible 3. It gets major credit for course correcting for the previous installment, for adding Simon Pegg's Benji Dunn as an eventual IMF agent, as well as bringing in Michelle Monaghan as Julia, and for nabbing Philip Seymour Hoffman as such a memorable bad guy. Now look, beyond that, it doesn't quite pack the wow and thrill factor that the rest of the movies on the list are going to have in their arsenal, but it does make a nicely visceral impression, which means we've now reached the top three. So number three, I'm going with the fifth installment, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. This is the one that introduces Alec Baldwin into the mix, as well as, well, well he will be the government obstacle that Ethan Hunt is going to eventually going to win over, as well as Rebecca Ferguson's Elsa Faust, not to mention a pretty decent, if not the best, villain in Sean Harris's Solomon Lane. Number two. Now, I'm going to part ways with many Mission Impossible fans here. That's what I'm picking for number two is Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. That's right, I got that one all the way up here at number two. I know a lot of people might have it lower. I don't care. I'm sorry. 
the entire Dubai sequence I talked about before, it still stands, now that I've seen all seven, it still stands as the most impressive for both thrills and chills. It's the most impressive sequence in the entire series. Uh, look, the train car, after train car being dragged over the edge in this latest one, certainly ranks up there, but I'm sorry, it's all about Dubai for me, man. Plus, Paula Patton, I really thought she was a nice addition to the team. I really missed seeing her. Uh, I wish I knew why they didn't bring her back. I mean, I'm sure there's a good reason. Maybe she can get along with Cruz. Who knows? Uh, Renner is really good in that first one, far more than, than he is in the subsequent one. Then we get the whole fake out in the beginning with Josh Holloway, who gets killed super fast, which was, oh, sorry, fellow Lost fans, but hey, wasn't that a bitch? And I think Peg also really comes into his own in this film more than any other as well. Probably the only knock on the movie overall is that we don't get to see Ving Rhames Luther until the very end of the picture. But man, this was one of the best to see in the theater, if not the best to see in the theater. And that thought hit me once again when I rewatched it last week. So that means coming in at number one, it's... The grandly, as opposed to grossly, overstuffed masterpiece of mayhem, Mission Impossible, Fallout. That would be the sixth film. Oh yes, it's crazily over the top and insane. And you know what? It's more fun than any of the other six. As I said before, Cavill is a great one-on-one adversary. It's got surprises. It's got shocks. Hey, look, I did not foresee killing off Alec Baldwin in that movie for... You've got your ticking bombs, you've got your ludicrous chases. It's the one that's got it all. And that's why it has the number one slot for me. Now, time will tell how that eighth film, when it comes out, how that one's going to rank. Like I said, maybe it'll be such a good companion piece to Dead Reckoning Part 1, they can end up sharing a spot together high up on a future list. You know, the way that some people combine pairs of films like, you know, like the two Kill Bill movies, for example. Okay, I was hoping to get this one, this potentially mammoth podcast done in record time, and holy crap, I think I did. (laughs) But I will leave it to you, the listener, to decide if covering seven films, and it looks like I'm going to get it done in roughly an hour, is impressive or lame. But if you were impressed, you know what else might might make a good impression on you? Hanging out on our Facebook page. So go to Facebook and look for the Serious TV Drama Podcast. You can like the page and join the conversation about any number of TV shows and movies. You can find us on most podcasting platforms, but if you want to share your love, or at least your like, of our little enterprise here, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, where you can rate and review us there. Hey, you don't have to listen to us there. Just, uh, you know, the stars and the words on our behalf. Unless you think we stink, then, uh, you know, don't. Now, you can also find our entire archive of 386 episodes over at podbean.com. You can find us as the Serious TV Drama Podcast. I think if you just type in STVD, you'd find us that way, too. But, you know, does it take you that long to type that much? I don't think so. Um, Oh, you know what? On both Apple and Podbean, you can also look up Scott Forgot the 80s. That's my other podcasting venture. Just remember, Scott is spelled with one T. As far as that podcast is concerned, there should be a new one in the next couple of weeks where I'm going to be joined by uh, uh, Common... Common? That's not the word. 
Occasional, occasional, yes, that's a word. I mean, the word. Uh, occasional STVD uh, co-host Jamie is going to be joining me for the first time on that podcast, and we're going to be discussing the film that she loves and I still have yet to see, Adventures in Babysitting. I, I left out the uh, the Twitter and Instagram stuff. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram. It's serious TV drama, all is one word. I actually just posted several images there. Uh, yesterday, I meant to post one today. I'll, maybe I'll do that after I finish recording. Um, and you can follow us on Twitter. I don't know if I'm going to be shifting things over to threads or not. I think for the time being, I will not be doing that because I've just got so many other things going on right now, but who knows? But if you still are on Twitter, you can find us there as at STVD podcast at STVD as in serious TV drama. And speaking of STV, on the STV podcast, Brian and I will be talking pretty soon about the first four episodes of Justified City Primeval. Um, so you have that to look forward to, folks. Um, probably going to do that a day or two after the fourth episode airs, uh, which I think that shows up on FX and on August 1st, which means Hulu on August 2nd. So assume it will be sometime in the first week of August. Alrighty then. Hopefully, my mission was accomplished. And equally, hopefully, you won't have to disavow ever having listened to this podcast. So have a good night. Mm-hmm.